on August 28, 1963, a defining moment for the rights of all United States citizens occurred. And as thousands of people gathered around Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he gave what became his infamous I Have a Dream speech. This morning, you heard just a clip, and we're going to re-enter where he begins to say, there are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutalities. We can never be satisfied. As long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels, the highways, and the hotels of the cities, we cannot be satisfied. As long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one, we cannot be satisfied. As long as our children are robbed of their selfhood and stripped of their dignity by a sign stating for whites only, we can never be satisfied. As long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. And then he borrows from the prophet Amos. We read it. We heard it. And he says, no. No, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And here, you even hear just a glimpse of it. The crowd there can't contain themselves. It turns into a gospel church where they're saying, tell it, tell it, amen, go on. And if you watch the video, there's a key shift happening right here. He no longer looks down at what he'd written, but he looks up and carries with him the air of the prophets of old. And his normal speaking takes on the cadence of a song. You know, uh, historian Taylor Branch writes how singer uh, Maalia Jackson was sitting behind Dr. King and she pipes up like she might in a church choir. She says, tell him about the dream, Martin. And so he speaks, sings, I have a dream. I have a dream. And he shifts from the prophet Amos to the prophet Isaiah saying, one day all children of God will be judged no longer by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that every valley will be raised up and every mountain will be brought down. The glory of God will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. I have a dream. And he picks up on this theme that we've seen throughout the prophets of the day of the Lord when all wrongs are righted. Well, whenever we think back on the atrocious nightmares that our brothers and sisters had to endure, the ones we know about, the ones we haven't heard about, deep within us we have this longing for the vision of justice that we see portrayed in the prophet Amos. And yet, even though ever since this I have a dream speech from Dr. King has been etched into the national con the conscience of our, of our nation. We still do not feel or see justice roll like waters and righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream in our city or in our world, do we? The words of Amos, 
They're just as relevant as they were 2,800 years ago. It's a testament to God's word. They're just as alarming as they were 50 years ago. And if he were to come here today, he wouldn't be speaking to some crowd that has a mixture of creeds. He would look at the crowd who says they follow Jesus. And he'd ask us the question, you, you and me, where's your heart for the poor? Where's your longing for the compassion? Are you there for the handicapped? Are you looking out for the immigrant? Are you longing to care for the socially avoided and the vulnerable? Why are you distancing yourself and detaching yourselves from those who are so weak in your midst? You see, throughout history, justice, it's never been an optional struggle for the people of God. It's not something some Christians are called to while others are just looking on. To the contrary, it's at the core of the character of who God is and therefore at the core of what it means to even follow Jesus. If you want to know what real faith is, we have to know what justice is. And so this morning we come to hear afresh from Amos. We come to hear afresh how justice helps us understand the whole of the Christian story in these three primary ways. Understanding justice, it helps us understand who God is. Understanding justice, it helps us understand who we are, and it helps us understand what real faith is. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos, chapter 5? And if you didn't bring a Bible, we have some free community Bibles here in the center aisle chair. So if you've chosen that chair, it's kind of like sitting on an airplane on the emergency exit. You have a task. Um, If somebody does not have a Bible, feel free to grab that and hand it out. And you'll find Amos chapter 5 on page 498 of the community Bibles. While you're turning there, I want to give you a backdrop of Amos. Uh, Amos, it's 800 years before Jesus comes uh, to the world. And so 2,800 years ago, and it was a time of relative peace for Israel and her geopolitical neighbors. It wasn't because everybody was lovey-dovey. It was because nobody really had the strength or the courage at the time to pursue conquest and expanding their borders. So during this relative peace, Israeli business and enterprise flourished. You see an economic boom happening here in the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's the strategic location along every major trade route that made it so economically booming. I mean, if you wanted to get from Egypt to Assyria or Babylon, you normally had to travel through Israel. Like we have toll roads, they would ask you to pay a toll to make it your way through, or you'd have to take some dangerous out-of-the-way route and possibly lose much of your product. So Israel, it's amassing all of this major wealth. But as the wealth continues to grow... And begins, the money begins to flow. The disparity between the rich and the poor continues to part further and further to the point that those who are rich who were called to use their wealth to care for the poor, for the disadvantaged, for the hurting, for the vulnerable, was now using that wealth to actually twist justice and to take advantage of those who are poor and broken in their community. This is when God taps Amos on the shoulder. And and when God called Amos to prophesy against the northern kingdom of Israel, I love this because Amos, he wasn't looking for a preaching gig. 
I mean, he's a southern boy from the hills of Judah, you know. Um, he, he, he's, he's a multidisciplinary guy. He's made himself very marketable. Uh, so he can, he can care for sheep. He can care for fig trees. And he knew the scriptures pretty well, as most Israelites who were concerned about following Yahweh would. And he sees and begins to have this dissonance as he sees some of his friends in indentured slavery and indentured work to the rich in northern Israel. He was able to work as a shepherd and as a cultivator of trees, as we said, but that all changed once God tapped him on the shoulder. And it's from this, this poor shepherd that we hear the very voice of God in Amos chapter 5, verse 10. Would you look on with me? It says, or God says, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgression and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Caring about justice isn't some marketing scheme for God to improve his self-image. He isn't target and he isn't the gap, you know. Social justice and, and pursuing justice for his people is at the core of his character. This is why God begins his message at the beginning of the book of Amos. Those of you who are reading through open here would have read this this past week. Where God begins in chapter 1 verse 2 describing his words as the roar of an angry lion. It's not very inviting. It causes us to shudder in fear. Understanding God's heart for justice helps us know who God is. I mean, he stands up for the forgotten and he stands up for the abused. And this shouldn't surprise Israel or us because this has been his MO ever since he's been with Israel and even before that. But if we were to just look at the history of Israel and track through this grand history that God has worked with his people, we would see that when Moses led them through the desert, we see in Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 and 18, it said of God, for the Lord your God is God of all gods and Lord of all lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Later in the history, when David was their king, we hear the psalmists sing in 146, verses 7 through 9, he executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live justly. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. And if we were to include the rest of the prophets, we would see this grand choir. But if we were to pick one tenor, you know, out of this choir of prophets and highlight Zechariah in chapter 7, verses 10 through 11, God explicitly commands his people to administer true justice Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. I could give you countless passages on where this shows up, where God is revealing who he is. An advocate of the widow, an advocate of the orphan, an advocate for the immigrant, or as we see in many of our translations, the foreigner, or an advocate for the poor, 
the vulnerable. I mean, this special group, it's found so frequently throughout the pages of Scripture that some have called them the quartet of the vulnerable. I mean, these individuals, they're on the bottom of the social hierarchy, and they had a shared level of vulnerability that made them especially defenseless against chronic abuse and chronic neglect. Every city has this quartet of the vulnerable, but not every city notices them, let alone cares for them. When we return to Amos 5, we see that God's concern is both spiritual and social in its care. In the ancient Near East, there was no easy division between religion and real estate, God and government. Um, That's why when you look at the laws that God gave to Moses, they were intersected with religious practice, personal morality, justice systems, and social care. They were all intertwined. You see, God, he longs for all persons to be whole persons, to be flourishing, Yes, physically, spiritually, but also relationally, emotionally, and economically. This is the vision that God has for his, his humanity. But in verse 10, the justice system has become anything but just. In Israel, we see that they've abandoned the system of justice and placed the almighty dollar in the place of almighty God. And now... Money is the determiner of a case. We see here that truth is no longer allowed at the gate. And, and, and the gate was the courthouse of the ancient Near East. You'd have the elders who would come and sit before the gate, and the people would bring their cases of complaints or disputes amongst one another. And God was very rigid that the, the judges were not to take bribes. This was supposed to be strictly for the people. Money was not to be exchanged here to sway one's decision one toward the other. The poor, though we see in this now rich Israel, are being rejected justice because the the elders are listening to the voices of these rich oppressors rather than God. You can tell a lot about the spiritual realities of a city by actually how they care for this quartet or how they have lack of care for this quartet of the vulnerable. And here, God's assessed Israel and he's found her wanting He knows Israel's sin, he calls it. He calls this transgression, crossing the boundaries at which he is designed. He's seen it all, and it ticks him off. And God will not allow them to enjoy forever the extravagance that they have taken on the backs of the poor. A day is coming, says the Lord. Well, when we hear this, Some of us may ask the question, maybe because we've had other conversations or we've heard other sermons, or maybe just from this morning, you may ask, well, does God play favorites then? I mean, everybody else in our world plays favorites. Does God love the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor more than he does a middle-class American? Well, I think if you scour the pages of Scripture, the answer is an emphatic no. But... (laughs) This is key. But he does set apart a special opportunity of care for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor as they are recipients to this special care. Why? Because they have this intense lack of care by everyone else. And their vulnerability of their life situation is dire. The interaction of God is so critical to them surviving. 
And his care, and this is what's so beautiful about who God is, his care extends beyond more than just deliverance, but it even invites dignity within that deliverance. How so? Well, we see that this is how God purposely identifies himself. He extends dignity by bringing visibility to many times the people who are overlooked in our society. You know, if you looked at someone's business card, there's three important things they want you to capture, right? One, they want you to know their name. So if you see them again, they'll know who you are. Secondly, they want you to know how to contact them so that you'll use their business. And then thirdly, what their business is all about, what they're known for, what they do. Well, if God had a business card, it would say, obviously name, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Contact, wireless prayer chain, always available, you know. Um, But then what would he do? Father of the fatherless. Husband to the widow, provider for the poor, and hospitable to the immigrant. Over and over and over again, as we saw in the passages which were read this morning already, God identifies himself as caring for the least of these. And so I ask you this morning, is this a God you know? Is this a God that brings comfort to your heart or fear to your heart? And it's here that some people can even get a little stuffy in their response. We, we so easily become pharisaical. We start adding all these extra restrictions and rules. And we love to make guidelines on who's in and who's out, right? Well, we can ask and, or begin to say, I knew it. <laughs> all rich people are bad, you know. Having a lot of money is bad. You can't follow Jesus and be rich. To be a real Christian, you have to give everything away and just have one day's worth of clothing. Become homeless like Jesus, God identifies with the poor, so I must identify with God in the poor. And I personally have wrestled through that position myself, so I don't say that in a mocking way. But what about, I begin wrestling with this, what about God's identification with the other three in the quartet? Does that mean God's calling you to abandon your spouse, to run away from your parents, to become a widow and an orphan, and then to leave your country and now become an immigrant and a foreigner? I don't think that's what God's calling us to, to move and to to become these most vulnerable, but to interact and to intercede in the vulnerable. And I think if we do say that we need to become poor, we've missed the complete point of what Amos is teaching, that wealth is evil is not what he's saying. When we understand God's design for justice, we understand who God is, but he also gives us a window into who we are as people. Our main problem is, It isn't that we're too rich most of the time. It isn't that we're too powerful. But we don't realize how vulnerable, how poor, and disenfranchised each one of us in here are. And this brings us to our second point this morning. When we understand God's design for justice, it helps us know who we are as people. Earlier in Amos chapter 2 verse 9 Um, Before he ever brings the accusations that we find in chapter 5 of Amos of the injustices of Israel, God brings this charge against his people. It was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? 
And my first thought when I read this, and this may be terrible, but I thought, God, why are you bringing up the Exodus now? I mean, how long ago is this? When are we going to move past? I mean, I get it. You did something great in the Exodus. But what's so enraging to God isn't merely that Israel is corrupt, but she forgot who she was, and she's forgotten who she is. The now rich and powerful nation forgot that when she was an orphan, God adopted her. Israel forgot that when she was a widow, God married her. When, when she was an immigrant, God gave her a land. When she was impoverished, God gave her an inheritance. And in their forgetfulness, they became like the very oppressors of Egypt, which God rescued, rescued them from. And Amos, he opens a window into our heart. He opens a window into who we are as human beings from God's word, that we're all weak, we're all poor, we're all displaced, apart from the grace of God. Like I said, it isn't that money and power and prestige are evil, but when we do have great amounts of wealth, when we are gifted with extreme power in places of influence or prestige and honor, we so easily forget that in God's eyes, everyone, even the rich and the powerful, are just as poor, just as weak as the homeless person that we interact on the streets here downtown. Do you recognize your own poverty this morning? The Apostle Paul, I think he drives this point home as Randy already Proclaim this passage to us this morning. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, the beauty, the perfect standard of God. I mean, that word all, it doesn't really give us a bunch of wiggle room, does it? In one sense, it's very culturally inviting because it's all-inclusive. <laughs> but in another sense, it's very culturally uncomfortable because it's all-inclusively condemning. No matter whether you're rich or poor, the plumber or the president... No one can stand before God except as a vulnerable and poor person in need of God's lavish grace. And thank God that although all have sinned later, Paul says in his letter to the Romans in chapter 10, verse 13, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And admitting our poverty and crying out for God's grace through Jesus Christ, we can be saved from death and slavery. We can be enriched with life and life everlasting. We can be empowered with love that transforms communities by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. We were once like Israel, slaves to death. But this generation of Israelites, they've forgotten this. They believed they could cling to a promise a promise while they trampled on the poor. They believed they could hold on to a covenant that they had already broken. And they step into a realm of false security. In Amos 5, as we read on the screen this morning, verses 18 through 20, we hear this shocking blow. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. That's a bummer. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? 
And you want to ask, wait a minute, Amos. You know, I thought the day of the Lord was supposed to be a good thing for God's people, right? It's a day when all wrongs are righted. When, when, when God delivers his people from pain and suffering to a flourishing that will never end. And it is that day. The day of the Lord is beautiful for God's people, but Israel had forgotten who they were. They had a distorted view of what God's coming meant for them. For Israel, she saw God's coming as an opportunity to dominate those around her and extend her legacy of power, another statement of her success and her resources. But God, rather than encouraging Israel, begins to sing a funeral dirge. Woe to you. Woe to you. This is the language that you would hire professional lamenters to come out and sing before a profession of someone who is already dead. And now God sings this over Israel. When they forgot who they were and became oppressors, they aligned themselves as the enemies of God rather than the allies. This is tough to hear, and quite frankly, it's a scary realization to how forgetful Israel was, this new generation. And we're left wanting to know if we're just as deluded, right? We want to know. And this leads us to our third point, understanding God's design for justice. It helps us know what real faith is. At the end of Amos chapter 5, God says to Israel, I hate which earlier is the same word he used in proclaiming Israel to hate evil. Okay, this is a strong word. Earlier in verse 15, he says, Israel hate evil but love good. Here he says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But, and we remember the words of Dr. King, let justice roll like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. You see, God longs to be known for who he is, not for someone he's not. And God cares for the poor. And quite frankly, when we see ourselves, we see too that we are poor in need of his grace. And he calls us to trust him and to trust his ways. One theologian, um, John Schneider, in his book, The Good of Affluence, um, helps us understand the connection between justice and faith. He says, justice is righteousness expressed in the social order. And when Israel refused to care for the vulnerable, to look out for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor, it expressed a total lack of trust in who God is, a total misunderstanding in who God is. You see, the bottom line is that how we care for the vulnerable, widows, orphans, immigrants, the poor, the imprisoned, it shows our faith in a God who identifies with the least of these. It doesn't matter if our harmonies are dead on when we're singing and listening to an absolutely wonderful team. It doesn't matter how much money you drop in the offering box if those are good things, but if, if at the end of the day it just shows that you're going through the motions and you pay no mind to the poor, they're worthless. This is what God says. 
But Jesus had something to say about this too. I mean, he wasn't quiet on this issue. And we come to, I think, is one of the most haunting, one of the most haunting passages in the New Testament in Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about this day of the Lord and the picture Jesus uses as the defining mark of true faith is how we cared for the poor, how we cared for the needy, the immigrant, the imprisoned. I was recently uh, reading about a pastor who went to Ethiopia when it was still under Marxist rule, and the church was largely underground. Um, Every now and then, a leader of the Christian group would be put into prison. Obviously, the, the, the conditions of the prison was that it was overcrowded, absolutely terrible in its hygiene and care. But other prisoners used to long for Christians to come to the prisons. Why? Because if a Christian was jailed, his Christian friends would bring him food. (laughs) And they wouldn't bring just enough for that leader. They'd bring enough for everyone. And so the prayer, the prisoner's prayer in Ethiopia was, God, send a Christian to prison. (laughs) I mean, how mind-blowing is that? You see, true faith, it recognizes that we're poor and vulnerable people, only rich because of God's grace that he lavishes upon us freely. And by experiencing God's generosity, we respond in gratitude, not in guilt. This isn't meant to guilt us, but in gratitude to care and empower the vulnerable among us. The Holy Spirit's natural response is to steward this compassion towards our fellow human beings. So I ask you this morning, do you want to see justice roll like mighty waters? Or are you satisfied with just a trickle? God's calling, but this time he's tapping you on the shoulder. So I want to take a moment to get practical. Um, Sometimes messages on justice, quite frankly, they just make us feel guilty. And then we get overwhelmed. And then we walk away and we don't do anything. And we just feel worse about ourselves, don't we? I mean, it's, what are we going to do? Well, here are some action steps that I think are really helpful for us to enter into what God is already doing in his justice. Um, And I think if you look at these three action steps, they have a threefold progression. Um, So let me ask you a few questions to consider before we um, transition this morning. First, are you aware? Are you aware Do you know the systemic injustice that exists in our community? Now, I know, I know many of you live downtown or are involved in downtown in many ways, and it's so easy for us to say we know what's going on. But do you take time to intentionally be informed? I mean, this was one of the big issues for Amos. If you look after chapter 5 and chapter 6, you'll see that the ruling class intentionally ignored the problems around them. They were at ease because they didn't know and didn't try to know what was going on. They were happy living next to, but ignorant of, the the vulnerable. And instead of doing that, how about about we spend some time intentionally getting to know the issues that face Kansas City? Not just driving by, but digging around, digging in, going deeper. And I want to use one example because it's close to my heart. Um, We all know the Kansas City schools, but do we understand the importance of how public education impacts a whole generation of people? Earlier this year, when we were still in Screenland, we had the opportunity to present a movie on MLK. Um, 
And Stan Archie was there, the pastor of our sister church, Christian Fellowship. And I had some time to talk with him, and he said that, that a community could project how many prisons they needed to build based on third grade reading level, which is a very daunting and very heartbreaking reality when you look at what my, Mayor Sly James, our mayor here in Kansas City, says on Turn the Page KC, a local website. He says, 61% of low-income children have no children's books at home. By age two, poor children are already behind their peers in listening, counting, and other skills essential to literacy. By age five, a typical middle-class child recognizes 22 letters of the alphabet compared to nine for a child from a low-income family. And this is just one example of how we're setting up whole generations of children for failure systemically as a city and quite frankly when you look abroad at our nation this is why we're rooting for crossroads academy down here a new charter school that's working with kindergarten and then eventually through eighth grade they're adding i think sixth grade this year and they have excellent teachers very intentional about reaching the children in our community and empowering them for better opportunities are you aware of what's going on? I think another simple step could be to learn about what our partners are doing that are teamed up with us as Christ community and are strategically placed to do dynamic work in the areas of this quartet of the vulnerable in our city. Um, you could go to our website at ccefc.org serve and there's an easy link to be able to purview what those partners are. And I would encourage you don't just read that quick synopsis. Click on their web website. Dig around. Get to know what activities are going on. And maybe even join in and observe. They're willing to invite. They're willing to, to accompany or allow you to accompany them as they're working in the city if you want to learn and grow. So that could be one of the first steps. But as we all know, awareness it kind of stops in the mind, doesn't it? But we can't stop there. According to Amos, according to what God is saying, what, what God's word says across its pages, we can't stop there. So let me ask you this. Not only are you aware, but do you care? There sometimes is a huge gap between our mind and our heart. Whether we're broken. And Amos, he tells us that the ruling class was completely self-absorbed and they did not grieve over the injustice that surrounded them. What about you? Are you broken? over the injustice that is in our city. When we hear stories about the Kansas City schools and its impact on whole generations, do you respond with compassion or judgment? Whispering under your breath, that's oh, their own fault. It's their own fault. Do you come with pessimism and choose not to get involved because you say, ah, oh, it's never going to change. Why even try? I wish I could give you some examples or some deeper ways on how to stir care, but really that's the work of God in your heart. And so the best advice I have is prayer. Pray that God would break your heart for the things that break his. And as a friend of mine once told me, be careful when you do that because you never know what God's going to call you to. It's a dangerous prayer, but it's such a beautiful prayer when you're involved in the work of justice that God has called us to. So not only are you aware and do you care, but finally, 
Are you engaged? Are you active? Are you involved? If we truly care, action, it's unavoidable, right? I mean, if your heart is broken for the injustice in our city and in our world, I'd encourage you to pray. And wait, you just said pray. Well, that's because prayer is really important in this whole justice thing. Prayer is one of the most key weapons we have in our arsenal as the people of God. For God to be working in our hearts and also empowering us in his ways and then guiding us for where he would have us link up, with who he's longing to link us up with, and even to navigate margins. I know many of you in here feel overwhelmed when we even ask this question, are you engaged? Your schedules are so full of so many other activities. But for a people, as the people of God, we need to discipline ourselves to actually make margin, both in time and in resources, to be about the work of justice. I loved, I was reading... um, an article today where they were interviewing the director of IJM, International Justice Mission. And she talked about justice as a spiritual discipline that we enter into. And as we enter into the crushing blows of the brokenness of our world, it guides us deeper into our relationship with Jesus. But we have to make time to enter into this discipline of justice. But I don't want to just stop there. We also have to think about our everyday God's placed you strategically in a vocation, in a, a job, a nine to five. For some of you, a six to six or more. And he's called you to use that vocation also, that place of business, that place to impact the world for justice. It may take creative energy. It may take a very thoughtful person to, to work through that, but spend some time praying and meditating on how God is using your vocation for the purposes of justice. And as he answers your prayers, which he will, he works in prayer, we have to be obedient to his call. Um, Don't just sit there pretending like you can't do anything when God actually does respond. Or that someone else would probably do a better job. He wants you to get involved. There may be better people. There's always better people, (laughs) quite frankly. But he's called us to be involved So get going. Now, for some of you, I need to say this too, because I feel your burden. There are some of you who just need to hear, keep going. You have hearts of compassion that just bubble over. And you you always challenge me when I interact with you. And your schedules are so full of pursuing justice in our city. Well, may this text be wind in your sails to keep going. Keep pursuing the work of justice that God has prepared for you to do. But I think for the majority of us this morning, we need to hear, get going, right? I know for me, as I think about my own life, I need to hear, get going. I need to be creating better margin to be involved in the work of justice in our city. You may have been convicted about this before, but you need to get going now. You've intended to take steps of action in the past, but time passes and you end up doing nothing. Well, get going ask yourself, what am I going to do? I mean, how would God want me to live differently? And if you've never wrestled through this tension, then you're not wrestling through the message of Amos as God is speaking to us this morning. If you haven't wrestled through this tension, you're not hearing God speak this morning. You're choosing to ignore his challenge to his people for the good of what real faith looks like. We're saved by grace, but this grace propels us to the work of justice. 
God, He loves and He protects the vulnerable. And when we understand God's design for justice, we know that we should too. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning thankful for the work that you have done in the life of Amos. Thank you for recording your strong and hard words, but may they be life-giving as we respond in true faith to who you really are in the place of who we really are. Guide us this morning as we now turn to your table and reflect in the Lord's Supper, the, most, the greatest act of justice, Christ crucified on our behalf. Amen. Well, when God wanted us to remember who he is, he gave us a meal. And it wasn't just a meal, it was a just meal where God became vulnerable flesh, died an impoverished death so that you and I who are impoverished, who are in a strange land, who are seen as orphans and widows in this world, displaced, might have a seat at the table regardless of our socioeconomic standing, regardless of our race, regardless of our stage of life. And all we have to do is embrace the gift of the free chair that he provides for us. It's at this table that we remember his body broken through common bread, his body trampled, his body discarded, hungry, thirsty for us, and his blood shed in generosity for the forgiveness of our sins. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And in a similar way, after giving thanks, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Before we come, let's take a moment of quiet reflection to remember our own poverty and how Christ took that upon himself for us and to remember our brothers and sisters down the street and around the globe who are waiting for us to then come and take their poverty upon ourselves as we follow Jesus down the path of the cross.